Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here. It is great to see you this morning uh, as we come for worship. Um, it is good to be together. It's good to sing praise to our God and to come to his word. And the portion of his word that we're going to be looking at this morning comes from John chapter 6. John chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Um, you can also follow along in your order of service. Uh, the passage is printed there. And this is a, a passage that's continuing in our series this uh, fall, or excuse me, this winter and spring, looking specifically at uh, different episodes in the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, figures prominently. Remember, um, these, these are entryways into discussions with Jesus. We're not really as concerned about Peter himself as much as we are concerned about Jesus, because as Christians, at the center of our lives, at the center of our faith, is Christ. And so, so how is it that Jesus responds to Peter? What is the conversations that he engages with him? How in these conversations and in these ways does Jesus show us what it looks like for us as his followers to follow him and what we are to believe about this king who has come, this Messiah? And so that's what we've been looking at, and this morning is much of the same. Peter, here in our passage, is representing a group who responds positively to Jesus' teaching, and this is in contrast to another group who responds negatively. And as I was thinking about these two groups, as I was thinking about this passage, I was reminded this week of a quote by the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. The passage, the uh, verse that, he, that I quote from him is printed in your reflections. He said this, he said, if you have any knowledge at all of human nature, you know that those who only admire the truth will, when danger appears, become traitors. The admirer is infatuated with the false security of greatness. But if there is any inconvenience or trouble, he pulls back. Christ, however, never asked for admirers. He consistently spoke of followers and disciples. So you hear the contrast that he's setting up. He's saying the admirer is the person who looks at Jesus and says, Jesus is a moral man. Jesus is a great teacher. Jesus is someone that is worth listening to. That's what the admirer says. But as soon as difficulty comes about, as soon as problems ensue, that admirer becomes like wet Kleenex. It just falls apart. And that's what we see playing out in our passage. We see those who are clearly uh, distinct, those, those who are admirers and those who are followers. We see those who fall away and those who are firm. We see those who stay and those who go. So the question that we need to be asking ourselves as we come to this passage is why would we stay? Why should we follow? Why should we be more than simply admirers? All right, so John Chapter 6, beginning in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who, who were 
those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our God and our King, we do thank you for this portion of your word. And we ask for your help now. I ask that you would help me as I preach your word, that that the words of my mouth would give you glory. I pray for us all that as we sit and we listen and engage over your word, that the meditations of our spirits would honor you, so that in this moment and in this day and in all our days, you would be made much of, that you would be glorified in our lives. So meet with us now, we pray. Lead us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we heard it in this passage, right? The two groups, the people who stay and the people who go, right? So that's the question. Should I stay or should I go? Right? We see it in verse 66. The people, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So what caused them to leave? Like what caused them to go? Well, in verse 60, we see that his, their concern is the content of Jesus's message. It's the content. That's what we read in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, that phrase, hard saying, it doesn't mean difficult to understand. It doesn't mean like if if we just kind of ponder over it a little bit more, we think about it, then it will come to our knowledge. We'll understand what Jesus is talking about. No, hard saying here means harsh or unpleasant. It's something that is offensive. But what's so difficult for them? Why are they so offended by what Jesus has taught? Well, we have to understand the context of John 6. You see, before verse 60, Jesus has been talking to his followers, to these people, about his, him being the bread of life. You remember this discourse? Jesus says, I am the bread of life, right? And you must eat of the bread. And he contrasts the bread of life with the manna that the people ate in the wilderness, right? The manna in the wilderness was given to those people as they came out of Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness. They're in the desert. They have nothing to eat, nothing to drink. And so God, out of his grace, gives them manna to eat. They ate of the manna for those years in the wilderness, right, as they wandered. And this is what sustained them. And now Jesus is saying, a greater bread has come. A greater food is in your presence. And so he says in the passage before ours, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now that is a strange statement, isn't it? If you eat my body, my body is true bread. If you drink my blood, my blood is true true drink. Now, now it's important for us to clarify, like Jesus isn't advocating for cannibalism, right? 
right? Uh, when I talk to kids as they're coming to the Lord's table, as they're being admitted, you know, they have to meet with me and meet with the elders. And one of the questions I ask, like when I say the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out, is it really his body? Is it really his blood, right? Are we drinking Jesus's blood and the kids go, ew, no, right? That's the, that's the right response, by the way, right? <laughs> That's gross, right? And so I say, well, so am I just a big fat liar? You know, is Pastor Penny a liar, kids? And is Jesus lying? Well, no, of course not, right? We know this. It's symbolic. It's symbolic, right? Jesus is speaking metaphorically, and Jesus does this all the time, right? He says, I'm the bread. He says, I'm the gate. He says, I'm the shepherd, right? Jesus was a carpenter. He wasn't a shepherd, right? He's using these as metaphors for us to understand what it means to follow him and who he is. And so when he says, I'm the bread of life, that you have to eat my body and drink my blood, what he is saying is that he is the person. He is the one that sustains. That our spiritual sustenance comes from us abiding in him. It's a metaphorical way of speaking of dependence. And so what Jesus is saying to these people is that his sustenance is greater than even manna. That bread that came from heaven, there is a greater food that has come from heaven. It is Christ. But he goes on, he says not only is he a better food, is he a better sustenance, but he also says that he is better than Moses. You see, that's the implication of verse 62 when he calls himself the son of man. See, he's saying, I'm, I'm even greater than the great prophet of old. I am the one you have been waiting for. I am the prophet that is greater than Moses. The son of man is a messianic title. And so as his hearers are hearing this, it becomes very apparent that they don't like what they hear. Right? They're happy to admire Jesus, the miracle worker. They're happy to admire Jesus, the challenger of the Pharisees. But when their sensibilities, when their theological categories are now challenged, when they find that their ideas are contrasted with Jesus' teaching, they're offended. It's offensive to them. You see, the content of Jesus' message leads them to leave. But it's not just the content, it's also the cross. His cross is what's offensive as well. So it's fascinating. Jesus knows that they're grumbling. We see in verse 61, knowing in himself. So he has some sort of divine knowledge of what's going on. He knows in himself that they're grumbling. And instead of ignoring it, instead of just passing it over, what does he do? He presses, <laughs> right? Jesus presses into their grumbling. And in verse 61, we read, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? So in essence, what Jesus is saying is, if you're offended by this teaching, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> I'm going to show you something that's going to make you really offended. And so he points to the ascension, which is interesting, isn't it? I mean, because when you think of things that would offend, the ascension maybe isn't the first thing that you would think of. Right? The ascension, if, if you're, you haven't read through the Gospels, if you're new to church, the ascension is the last event of Jesus' earthly ministry. Right? So he's conceived of the Virgin Mary, he's born, he, he was uh, lived, he died, he was crucified, he rose again from the dead, and then he ascends into heaven. But why does he point to the ascension? I mean, like, of all the things he could have pointed to, why that? Well, what's funny, or interesting, not funny, but interesting 
is that the ascension in of itself isn't the offensive part, but it's what it's a part of the whole. You see, John actually doesn't even recount the details of the ascension in his gospel. We know of the ascension because of Acts, which is recorded by Luke. And in fact, the the other time in which Jesus speaks of the ascension is in John chapter 3, where he talks about descending and ascending. And in that context, he also says, I will be raised up. He will be lifted up, which is a clear reference to the cross. And so what most commentators think Jesus is doing is pointing to the ascension as being representative of the entire salvific event, of the cross, of his death, of his burial, of his resurrection, and of his ascension. And this offends them. This is offensive to their ears, which might seem odd to us, because to us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, the, the cross is something that to us is the demonstration of God's greatest love, right? The, the cross is a demonstration of God's great grace. We're used to thinking of the cross as something that's beautiful, as something to cherish, but to first century years, the cross wasn't beautiful, it was ugly. It wasn't lovely, it was horrifying. This is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. You see, to the Jew, the cross looked like curse. And to the Gentiles, it looked like foolishness. And so that's why this offends You see, they had no category for a Messiah who would die and rise and ascend. They had no category for a Savior who would suffer. But Jesus won't leave them with those categories. You see, he won't leave them to look at him as simply an amusing speaker or challenging teacher, an eye-catching magician. No, No, they and we must see that Jesus is none other than the eternal Son of God who will die. So what are you going to do with that? What did they do with that? Well, we know in verse 66 that they left. Many turned and they walked away. Now, before we brush them aside before we ignore them and we just kind of be like, well, Penny, that's them. Like, we're in church. So it's clearly we're not them, right? I mean, we're in church, and we could, be, we could have slept in even longer this morning, right? We could, have, we could be preparing for our St. Patrick's Day activities, but we're not. We're here, and we're, we're worshiping, and we're singing, and we give, and we, so clearly this can't be talking about us. But, but before we brush it aside, did you hear what they were called who left? They were called disciples, That means that these are people who actually said, Jesus, I'm going to follow you initially. And they did. Right? They had heard with their own ears Jesus' teaching, and they had seen with their own eyes his works, and they loved what they had seen. But when it became tough, when it became difficult... When Jesus started challenging their presuppositions of what the Messiah was to be and what it was to be a disciple of this Messiah, they started falling away. It reminds me of the parable of the soils. You remember? 
Jesus tells this story, a parable of, of a farmer who goes out and he scatters soil and it falls on four different pieces of land, right? First on the path and it just gets blown away. It, it can't take root. But then there are two soils, you remember, the, the rocky soil and the, the soil with thorns. And the seed actually takes a little bit of root and it starts to grow. And it looks like it's going to be healthy. It looks like it's going to produce fruit. But what happens over time Right, The sun comes out and it scorches the, the uh, plant that's growing in the rocky soil. The thorns grow up and they choke out the one growing in the thorny soil. And it shows that there was no root at all. But it looked good for a time. That's what these disciples were like. I don't know how long they walked with Jesus. A week, a month, a year, I, I don't know. But over time, it was actually shown that there was no root. That as soon as they're challenged, as soon as Jesus' teaching became difficult, what they admired, they, they didn't want anymore. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul says to this church, this church that he knows and loves, this church that he has taught and wrote letters to, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we admiring or are we following? You know, it's often in the midst of challenge or difficulty that we see whether we're an admirer or a follower. So I don't know what it is that might challenge us about Jesus' teaching. I imagine that for most of us, it's actually not the cross. We're kind of content. We're happy with the Savior who would suffer in our place, right? But, but what about when his teaching, his, his content challenges our understanding of wealth? What about when he challenges our vocational aspirations? What about when Jesus challenges our political commitments or the ways that we think about family or our sense of control? What about when Jesus' content challenges those things? Do we see them as harsh? Do they offend? Are we simply admiring? It's when we come across challenge, when we come across hardship, when we come across difficulty, that we actually see whether we are admiring or following. My community group were reading a book by Paul David Tripp called Suffering. And so you know what the book's about, right? The title gives it away. Uh, it's, it's about how do we live as Christians in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hardship and difficulty. And a week ago, so a week last Sunday, we were talking about this one chapter. And in this chapter, um, Paul David Tripp makes this interesting observation, an observation that he, he witnessed by comparing two lives, two people who came to him. There was this one man who came who was experiencing difficulty, challenge, who was experiencing hardship. And, and in this man's life, the, the difficulty revealed that he only had a street-level trust of God. That's what Tripp calls it, a street-level trust. It was shallow. But he said in the midst of hardship in the life of this woman, in challenge and difficulty, that it provide the context for a deepening and maturing faith. And so we have to ask, do we have that street-level trust? Is it, is it trust that, that just when challenge and difficulty comes just reveals that we're simply admiring? Or are we following? 
See, Jesus doesn't want us admiring the easy parts of faith. He wants those who stay, those who follow, and that's the second group. So there are those who go, but then there are those who stay. And why should we stay? Why should we follow? The story goes on in verse 67. Jesus turns to to the 12. So there are a group of people who have left. We're not sure how many have left, but a crowd has left him. And now he turns to the 12 in verse 67 and says, Do you want to go as well? Now, Jesus, in asking this, he's not asking it sheepishly, right? He's not like, are, are you guys going to leave too? You know, like, I'm alone, I'm afraid. Like, that's not what he's doing. Because he knows who's going to leave, right? We actually have been told that in verse 64. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And so Jesus isn't asking because he's wondering if the disciples will stay or not. The question isn't for Jesus. The question is for the disciples, You see, they need to declare. They need to own. They need to respond to Christ. And so what does Peter say in verses 68 and 69? He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter is saying, we're staying. We're not going anywhere. We're staying. We're going to follow you. Why? Because you're God. That's why we follow him, because you are the Holy One of God. Now, this is a very fascinating statement, because it only shows up in two other places in the Gospels, in in Mark and in Luke, in Mark 1 and Luke chapter 4. And in those two instances, it's describing the same episode, the same situation. And that's the only other time in the Gospels that that phrase, Holy One of God, is used. And do you know who it is that says it? A demon. That's right. Jesus is in the synagogue. He's teaching. And he comes out of the synagogue and this man with an unclean spirit, which is another way of saying a demon-possessed man, comes up to Jesus and he says, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? A demon and Peter. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying Peter's demon-possessed, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But what is interesting about this is that Peter is acknowledging what the spiritual realm already knew. That Jesus is the one who has been assigned the highest place of earth and heaven. You see, this title, you are the Holy One of God, is declaring that Jesus is the one who has been set apart to bring life. He is the one to whom all the Old Testament Old Testament promises are pointing to Jesus is the one who is given greatest prominence in creation, but also in the heavenlies. You are God, the Holy One of God. But also the fact that Jesus is going to ascend points us to that too. Because did you hear what he said? I'm going to ascend to where I was before. Now, um, so that is a clear Example, it's a clear pointing to Jesus' eternality. You see, before, uh, before we were born, before we were formed in our mother's wombs, we didn't exist. We weren't like floating around and just waiting for our bodies to be formed. But Jesus, before he was born, he existed in heaven with the Father and the Holy Spirit in perfect, loving relationship. 
Before he was born, he existed. He has existed since the very, there was never a time when he didn't exist. And so the fact that he will ascend to where he once was before shows that he is God. He's given the greatest prominence, the greatest place. He's going to return to his rightful place where he is glorified and honored. See, we follow him because he's God, but we also follow him because of his grace. Peter asked, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You see, Peter is saying life comes through Jesus, and this is unique to Jesus. It only comes from him. True life only comes through Christ's work and his message. And let us just be honest, this is what is offensive to our world. In our day, this is what is offensive. The unique claims of Christ. Right? I mean, in our day, any sort of religious statement that sounds like an absolute statement is mocked, is regarded as lacking understanding, is perceived to be arrogant and narrow. Right? In our relativistic day, for us to say that there is a way, there is one way, that is what is offensive. And that is exactly what Peter declares. But Peter declares it because Jesus does. In verse 63, he says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. What Jesus is saying is that life only comes through him. That life offered from anywhere or anyone or anything else is but counterfeit. It is false life. This is why Jesus will say in another part of John, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's saying he is unique. The true life only comes through him and it is the grace of of God. I mean, did you hear what he said in verse 65? No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And in verse 70, did I not choose you? And earlier he said flesh is of no good use, right? It's of no help at all. What he's saying is that there is not enough in us to drum up, to work out, to create the life that we desire. That it only comes by the grace of God. That left to ourselves, we would never have life. But Jesus is saying life has come. He says, I give life, not, not because we're great, not because you're beautiful, not because you're so smart, not because you're so wealthy, not because you have so many gifts, right? Do you remember this is basically what he said, what God said to Israel in Deuteronomy, right? I didn't choose you because you were the biggest nation or the best nation or the strongest nation. Why did I choose you? Because I love you. Because I'm gracious to you. And that's what he says to us. That's what he says to us. There is nothing in your flesh that would cause me to love you, and yet I love you. I give you the life that you are longing for. I give you the life that you are needing. It is only but by the grace of God. You do not choose me, he says. I chose you. We only have life because of his grace. And Jesus' choice to shower us with that grace. And what is amazing about this is that he knows exactly what's coming. He knows exactly what's coming. He knew that those disciples would leave him. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. That's what he said, right? In verse 70 70 and 71, 
One of you is a devil. He was speaking of Judas who betrayed him. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. And he knew his death was going to come. And yet he went forward anyway. He didn't turn aside. He went forward anyway. With all that knowledge, he went to the cross so that we would have life. Friends, that is grace. That is love. That is God's mercy to his people. So to whom shall we go? Whom shall we follow? Where should we stay? Well, it's to Jesus, the Holy One of God. We do not leave, but we stay because of the grace that he has showered upon us. And so, friends, let us, let us not be admirers, but let us be followers. Amen. Our God and our King, we do thank you. We thank you and praise you that you have revealed your grace and mercy to us, that you have showered us with care that we are not deserving of, that you have loved us with a love that is not of this world, and that you have done it simply because of your grace. And so we ask that you would help us to follow you, to follow you, to give up all that hinders, to lay aside everything that gets in the way, and to follow you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. And God's people said, Amen.